Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The subject of this episode is, Are Elections Fueling Polarization in the House of Representatives? Now, polarization in Congress is a well-documented fact of life. This is particularly true on high salience issues such as immigration and abortion. Yet, the tendency of legislators to reflexively oppose policy ideas offered by the other party has bled into other, more prosaic issues. For example, in late 2021, an infrastructure bill became a bone of political contention. Republicans who voted for it were denounced by their colleagues, never mind the fact that the legislation might actually do good for those legislators' constituents. So, why are there so many hard left and hard right members of our national legislature? To help us think through this question, my guest is Andrew B. Hall, a political scientist at Stanford University. Dr. Hall has published many articles on elections and representation, and he's the author of Who Wants to Run? How the Devaluing of Political Office Drives Polarization. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Excited to be here. Thank you. Well, if I had a dollar given to me every time somebody said, Congress is polarized because Americans are polarized, well, I'd have enough bucks to take a really good vacation. Um, by my read, the idea that America has become the land of red states and blue states with right-wing rural folks and left-wing city folks has become pretty popular. Uh, you see references to it in the press all the time. So that prompts the question. We have a polarized Congress. Are voters the reason we have a polarized Congress? Yeah, it's a very reasonable question. I don't think it has nothing to do with it. I do think it's true that some Americans have become quite polarized. Obviously, we see it play out with things like the rural urban divide that you're talking about. But I think that there's a really important fallacy that a lot of people don't always uh, identify or think through when they think about Congress polarizing, which is that there's absolutely no guarantee that any change or non-change in people's opinions will map into what congressional candidates or members of Congress say or do, because there's this intermediate step we don't talk about very much, but which is really important, which is who actually decides to stand up and run for Congress. And if the people who decide to run are just systematically different from what the voters at large want, then unfortunately what people want or what they think or how they think or how polarized they are may not have any reflection uh, in what options they're actually presented to vote on. And so to get back to your question itself, I think it's, it's of course true that people are polarizing to some degree. I think it's vastly overstated. And when you look into evidence on most, you know, salient policy issues, it turns out that there's a large chunk of Americans caught in the middle 
who find both parties unpopular, who don't like the positions being espoused by lots of salient political officials, officials on either side. Uh, but the people who actually run for Congress are polarizing super dramatically. And so the voters are not being given a lot of opportunities to vote for the types of people they would prefer who might actually be uh, more moderate. All right. Well, if this is not a bottom-up phenomenon, if it's not the case that the average American has a really intense view one way or another on all sorts of issues like, I don't know, updating the Electoral Count Act of 1887, on which we had a party line vote in the House the other week. Uh, if that's not the, the issue, a polarized public driving everything, then is this about the political parties? Are the political parties simply recruiting candidates who are on the extreme left or extreme right? I don't think that they aren't part of the story. I think parties are driven by by the kinds of people who are willing to spend a lot of time on you know party related activities and those people are not going to be very representative of the public at large they're going to be particularly passionate people who might have more extreme views and so they may want to go out and recruit candidates who fit their viewpoints so that certainly could be part of it the thing i always like to emphasize though is just that the word party you know, carries a lot of connotations that don't make sense in the U.S. system. Like the parties in the U.S. are extremely weak. They don't really have a lot of carrots or sticks to offer people who are running or who have decided to, to run. So, for example, one of the most important things that, that not everyone knows is that anyone can run for office and say they're a, a Republican or a Democrat. And the parties are basically feckless to define what it even means to be a member of the party because of this completely open system that we have. And so if you look to, you know, let's say parliamentary systems in Europe where the party can actually define who's on the ballot and even in some places order them or kick someone out off if they're not, you know, reflective of what the party wants, that's just not how our system works. And so when we think about the parties like running candidates in the U.S., they just don't have that much to offer. They can beg people to run for them, and they can certainly link them up with resources that help them run, such as campaign finance, other types of advising. And that definitely makes a difference. So I don't want to say they do nothing. But at the end of the day, they both struggle to convince people to run because it's not a very appealing job. And they're also powerless to prevent people from running, which is, of course, probably most famously what we saw with Donald Trump who was in no way a Republican and who the Republican Party at large certainly did not want to run in 2016. And yet look what happened. But but just more generally, um, they're not that powerful at determining who runs. And so if we want to explain why the set of people who do run, especially for Congress, which is a, you know, a lower salience office compared to president, we need to look to other explanations besides just party recruitment. So if it's the part if the parties are not these powerful entities that can kind of gatekeep or screen out people, at least not in the U.S. context, what about the primaries? This process by which you know you have a low turnout election, uh, often in the summertime, where you know if you're a Democratic voter, you get a ballot and it lists only Democrats, and if you're a Republican voter, you get ballot that lists only Republicans. And if you're an independent or something else, either you can't vote or you have to declare yourself for one party or another, which is frequently the case. 
is this creating a self-selection process? Are primaries driving extremism in Congress and therefore polarization? I definitely think primaries are part of the story. And the reason I think they're part of the story is that I think there's just a general phenomenon in American politics across a wide range um, of contexts where more extreme people care more and are more willing to show up and more willing to do stuff and more willing to speak loudly. And so if we just look across the entire system, whether it's showing up at local city council meetings, whether it's tweeting relentlessly about your political views or whether it's voting in a primary, we've created a system where in almost every phase of every important part of the process, these small groups of people with extreme views are massively empowered relative to the rest of us, uh, which I think is hugely problematic. And I think primaries are a good example of this, where the set of people who turn out to very, very small slice of the electorate, um, the, the turnout rates are remarkably small. Uh, and they, it seems like they do have very different views on average uh, from the rest of us. And that can create complicated incentives. One thing it does, which is kind of related to, to what I think is going on, is it might give a more moderate candidate pause in thinking whether to run for office or not, because they might not look forward to having to survive a bruising primary against someone who might be more naturally popular with this small primary electorate. On the other hand, if I had to rank order the different parts of the system that are giving advantages to more extreme people, I wouldn't rank primaries as high as I think conventional wisdom might suggest. And that's because primaries are really complicated and there's there's a lot going on in primaries that's not ideological. Um, and if we look across the country, we can find lots of cases where, in fact, the more extreme person, the more kind of, you know, culture wars or whatever you want to call it type person, whether on the left or the right, um, isn't actually the one who succeeds in the primary. These advantages are not um, you know, deterministic. And so look, I mean, I think a really good example, whenever you see one of these super exaggerated newspaper articles about, you know, how primaries are fueling polarization, try to explain how Brad Raffensperger won his primary in Georgia. Cause I think that would have been just a textbook case for why supposedly the primary voters uh, should have voted him out because Trump didn't like him. And yet that's not what happened. And so I think the story is just more complicated there's the thing I always like to remind people is there's hundreds and hundreds of primaries each cycle. The news only, and, and you know, most people are not paying attention to house primaries. The news only seizes on a few really wild and salient ones. Um, but there's lots of other ones where who wins and who loses is complicated and doesn't really fit with a nice, clean kind of ideological story. Yes. I like to, when I talk about primaries with, with folks um, who are not, political scientists or politics geeks, I like to remind them that uh, in Ohio, my home state, kind of a bellwether state, only 25% of voters are registered with either party. Um, yeah. But Ohio has a system where, you know, if you're an indie, you can vote in the primary. Nonetheless, last time around, Senate primary, only about one in five voters bothered to yeah. show up because, yeah. hey, it's in the middle of the summertime and that's just not where your brain is at in summer to go out to the yeah. voting booth to go vote in a primary. Yeah, this is why I'm pretty pessimistic on all of these reforms to primaries themselves. So one of the things people have talked about is, you know, opening up primaries versus having them closed, which, you know, which means do you require party registration to vote in the primary or not? 
And whenever we've looked at that empirically, what you find is even though in theory, opening it up should allow a broader set of people to vote and nominate maybe a more moderate candidate, in practice, nothing happens because the same exact set of people uh, show up to vote because, I mean, that's exaggeration, not exactly the same, but the point is there's you just don't move on the margin. You don't get any more people to turn out when you set the rules up one way or another way, because in either case, there's a small set of people who care a lot and will show up no matter what. And then there's a broader set of people who don't care enough or are not willing to pay the costs of figuring out how to vote in this primary. And so it's, it's much harder than we think to break some of these links between being a more extreme, more passionate person about politics and being the ones who are willing to do all the extra work that makes politics move. Yeah. And I guess uh, your, your point about it being more complicated when thinking about primaries and you know why the results are as they are, we can't forget about the factor of money. Um, the extent to which primaries have become places where, you know, dark money and various PACs you know, from out of state frequently, out of district, are just pouring resources in to stoke the image of one candidate and to trash the image of the other candidate. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just advertising. That doesn't have anything to do with kind of emotionally where people are at and how it aligns yeah. with ideology can be pretty messy. I mean, there mm-hmm. are some hard right, for example dollars flowing into campaigns that are supporting folks who necessarily hard right. They just happen mm-hmm. to be that the favorite of that interest group. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually, actually really interesting. You brought that up because we're pretty close. I think in the next month or two, we're going to finish a study of this issue of out of state money. And, and just to give you just a few thoughts on, on what we found. So first of all, we, everyone, I think, Everyone who monitors this stuff knows it's been going up and up over time. But one thing that I don't think has been fully appreciated is how much the pandemic seems to have shifted it even further. There's a massive acceleration in 2020 in the amount of money that's coming from out of state. And this is not even dark money, by the way. This is just FEC standard donations to, to candidates. Um, and part of the reason we think that we're finding in our study, at least, why it's going up so much is that you know changes to the media environment and especially the internet and and online fundraising have made it much easier to raise money from out of state. And if you think about how that's changing elections, um, obviously the preferences of those out of state donors might be quite different. But in addition to in, in you know the way I'm always thinking about these things is in terms of who is then willing to run. If you know that these campaigns are going to be driven by the types of people who can get onto cable news or run online ads that get them out of state money, then you might think it's going to affect who's willing to run in the first place, because maybe I'm not as a kind of a centrist person. I know in advance, I'm not the type of person who's going to be able to raise that out of state money easily because I don't excite the out of state donors as much. I don't have a national, you know, leading profile. And so it could be a, uh, an important part of this phenomenon. Excellent. I look forward to seeing that research. All right. So it's time for the big reveal. Partisan polarization in Congress. If the public is not the overwhelming cause, if the parties and their selection of candidates, that's not the main cause. And if primaries are not the big factor, then what is? What does your research indicate? My research is about how the whole package that we've built in terms of how Congress works and how our elections work is not set up 
to make the job of being in Congress appealing to the vast majority of people, including most kind of centrist, more pragmatic types of people. And there's a lot of reasons for this, but like some of the main factors I would point to are on the congressional side, the fact that Congress has been kind of systematically over the last few decades shifting in a way that gives more and more of energy and the power to kind of drive legislation forward to a pretty small set of party leader actors and taking that away from kind of the members of Congress at large. You see this also in kind of the the declining resources given to the committee system in Congress, for example. These are all things that make it less appealing to be an average member of Congress if you're a centrist who cares about getting things done, uh, because your individual impact on the legislative process is significantly less than it used to be. So that's one factor, sort of like if you look ahead to what your job is going to be like in Congress, you don't have the same opportunities to drive forward policy that you used to. You might solve some, but not as many. The second, which is related to that, is just that there's this sense, I think, that it's not a job that is held in as high esteem as it used to for a variety of reasons. Uh, And it's not a job, interestingly, a lot of people don't believe me when I tell them this, but it's not a job that pays as well as it used to either. Um, and that's in large part because of because Congress is responsible for setting its own salary, and it's incredibly unpopular for, for members of Congress to vote to raise uh, their salaries. And so it, it doesn't keep up with inflation. And in real terms, um, members of Congress salaries have declined quite a lot since the 1960s. I am not saying that I think current members of Congress should get paid more, but I am saying that a system where they have fewer opportunities to impact the policy process. They're held in lower esteem and they're not paid as well as they used, they used to is a system that's not going to attract a lot of very practical, pragmatic, centrist people who might have other job opportunities where they feel like they can have a bigger impact. At the very same time that those shifts have occurred, we've also made running for Congress harder than it used to be. And I mean that in terms of um, this sort of like relentless expectations, particularly of calling people up and asking them for money, which is not a job most people like, as well as some of the kind of like more tabloid like, you know, media coverage, which is which has risen as a phenomenon in the last 30 or 40 years. And so when you put this all together, my argument is uh, it's just not a job very many people want. Indeed, when you ask most people if they want to be in Congress, they say no. And when you've built this system where it's very, very hard and unpleasant to run for office, and what you can do when you're in office has attenuated a lot, then you have to ask yourself this question, well, who's going to want to run when that's the deal that we're presenting people? And it turns out, and we have lots of data to support this, uh, it turns out that the people who stand up and say they want to run are quite ideologically extreme and are quite unrepresentative of society uh, at large. And so, I think if you want to understand why Congress is polarizing so much over time, a critical element you have to look at is the fact that the people running are just a lot more extreme than they used to be, uh, and they're quite unrepresentative of voters. Well, that sounds plausible, and that might you know explain the fact that it seems that there are so many show horses as opposed to workhorses in Congress today. I mean, the number of members who show up on Capitol Hill and decide that they want to spend a significant amount of their time on social media, doing podcasts, doing you know video 
conversations on various niche internet channels and the like, when you would think that they might be busy studying public policy, uh, you know, engaging in oversight activities and the like. Yeah, I could see a connection there. Um, that's not really what they're signing up to do is to govern. They're signing up to preach ideology. So what do we do about it? As a closing question uh, for the listeners, is there any prospects for reversing this trend? Is there any hope, Dr. Hall? <laughs> I, I'm a little bit hopeful, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. I mean, th- there's some particular reforms that I could talk about, and I will, but I think there's a broader thing that needs to happen, and I'm a little bit hopeful that I feel like in some ways it is happening. And the broader thing that I think needs to happen is we really need to pierce this, what I would call a, a misinformation bubble around how Congress works and how elections work. Because I think a lot of people have convinced themselves that this polarization story is true. And if you look, for example, at survey data on how Americans think other Americans perceive politics, they think people are way more polarized than they actually are because they're fed this narrative um, by by news media that everyone is super polarized. And you even have people saying this just utter nonsense about how you know, most Americans want to fight a civil war or something. And it's just not true. And I think that the more aware, more Americans can be that actually there's a huge majority of Americans caught in the middle of all this stuff. And that the reason they're all caught in the middle is because people on the extremes are the ones that have been taking all these political actions in the absence of more behavior by people in the middle. The more people are aware of that, the more we can start to actually name the problem and fix it. And I think I see signs of this all over the place, that actually a much broader set of people are getting engaged in politics in the last few years because what's going on in politics has become so unacceptable. And so I'm a little bit hopeful that there's a small amount of self-correction that it can occur when enough reasonable people become you know, entirely fed up with what's going on. And then in terms of how we could harness that energy Specifically, I think what we need to think about is how do you create a system that's more amenable to this broader set of people running for office and having a chance to win office? So if you think about, you know, what are the things we could do? We could, for example, try to reorganize Congress and and give Congress more capacity so that individual legislators can do more. So fund more like we used to give members of Congress more staff take away some of that resources from the from the leadership and give it back to committees, for example, so that we could have a plausible story that if you run and you win, you actually do have this chance to, to develop your own policy area and to become an expert and to impact legislation more. Of course, we could pay people more to be in Congress. I would not advocate for doing that directly, but we could consider something more reasonable where, for example, we say, we're going to raise congressional salaries in the future if the following conditions are met, uh, you know, sort of like conditions of success are met, we could create an independent commission to make those decisions so that legislators don't have to vote on it themselves. Um, and then we could change the way elections work. And I think some of the most basic things we could do, I'm not a lawyer, we would definitely need some, some lawyers to figure this out because there's constitutional issues, but ways to commit candidates to not having to spend all their time fundraising is, I think, the most critical one. Like if you talk to people who are running or who are considering running, their number one complaint is always that they have to spend all day dialing for dollars and they feel like they can't stop because they know their opponents are. 
whether that's in the primary or the general. And so you have to kind of create a system where I'm willing to stop dialing for dollars because I know my opponent also is. That might take the form, it doesn't necessarily need to be a legal change. It could take the form of compacts, sort of like self-enforcing compacts where a bunch of people come together and sign something saying, you know, I'm not going to fundraise this much. Um, But one way or another, I think something to make people who are thinking of running for office see that they're not going to have to spend all their time fundraising, I think would would go a long way. The last thing I'll just mention, because this this pertains to some new research I've been doing um, with Connor Phillips and Jim Snyder, is this process clearly starts well before just running for Congress. We actually, you start to, you're seeing the same patterns at the state ledge level. So the people running for state legislatures are more polarized than they used to be. And it's, and then that's the number one pool from which future members of Congress are drawn. And so when we think about convincing more moderate people to run for office, we should also be thinking about how do you do that at the state level? So how do you make more people want to become state legislators? And I think all the same ideas I just raised are probably useful, I hope at the state ledge level too, kind of making running for state ledge a more appealing deal for a broader set of people would I think go a long way, you know, in the long run. So there is some hope. Good. Good. That's what our listeners need. Hope. All right. Professor Andrew B. Hall, thank you for helping us understand the connection between who runs elections and political polarization in Congress. Thank you. It's great to talk. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jae-hun Lee and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you will share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. Once again, thank you for listening and have a great day.